This is Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine. The project makes a case that you don't often hear in history textbooks, that slavery was foundational to America. So it wasn't surprising that we ignited a fierce debate among historians about these issues. But that's the power of the New York Times, to spark an important dialogue with bold, rigorous reporting that forces us to examine our assumptions. To learn more, go to nytimes.com slash worth it. Getting eight hours of sleep every night? Check. Eat a quality, plant-based diet? Check. Exercise four or more times a week? Check. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure that you lead a long life. So isn't it time that you were financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? Q Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash naked scientist to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared with other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com slash naked scientist to let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthily. That's healthiq.com slash naked scientists. This week, our panel of experts are teaming up to tackle the bizarre and brain-bending questions you've been sending in, including, is it really bad to crack your knuckles? What does science have to say about free will? And do squirrels ever forget where they've buried their nuts? I'm Kat Arney, and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Let's start by meeting the team who are here to answer your questions. We've got one of our regulars, Ginny Smith. She's always ready to decode the mysteries of the mind. We have Max Gray. He's a marine biology PhD student at Cambridge University. He can field any questions about animals, birds and fish, or if you'd really like to put him through his paces plants. How about that, Max? And uh, we're, we're also joined by Hugh Hunt. He's our engineering expert from Cambridge University. And of course, the erstwhile Dr Chris Smith. He's a medical doctor but can take questions about pretty much anything. And with my own hat on, I I can answer any questions about genetics and cancer. So if you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or email chris at thenakedscientist.com. And now our first question we have in is for you, Chris. Let's go. Hello, Naked Scientist. My name is Eva Muhanguzi from Kampala, Uganda. And I just wanted to know, is cracking your knuckles bad for you? People have linked it to arthritis. And yeah, I'm just curious because I crack my knuckles a lot. Let's do a quick straw poll in the studio. Who who can crack their knuckles? I can't. I've got kind of clicky wrists, but anyone? Yeah, I can crack, crack my knuckles. Go on, Max. Anyone else? No, I can't. Here you know. I can't crack my knuckles, but I can crack my big toes. Go on, then. The magic of radio is not going to work for this one. That's kind of, how about you, Chris? Are you a knuckle cracker? No, no, is no it good. bad? Uh, no, no good at this, actually. I'm, I, I can't make my, my joints crack at all. Uh, very, very occasionally they do it, but I can't actually make them do it. Is it bad? 
scientists don't actually know if it's bad. There's anecdotal evidence that it isn't. The anecdotal evidence has won an Ig Nobel Prize, so that's probably how reliable the research is. Uh, Donald Unger did an N of 1 experiment on himself. He was a gentleman who, for 60 years, there's scientific dedication for you, cracked the knuckles of one hand but not the other, and he wanted to see if there was a difference in his rates of arthritis, and there wasn't. So on the basis of his sample size of one, there doesn't appear to be a problem. Why do we get the cracking noise when you move your fingers and digits? Well, actually, that was the work of British scientists in 1947 who first began to speculate what might be going on, but they had no way of proving whether or not they were right at the time. They speculated that what was going on was that when you bend your joint, you drop the pressure in the fluid, the synovial fluid inside the joint. The drop in pressure causes gas that's dissolved in the joint fluid to come out of solution and form a bubble, and either that the bubble popping into existence or collapsing in on itself would produce the energy that makes the sound. No one knew for sure what was the answer, but then Greg Korchuk, who's a researcher at the University of Alberta in Canada, he and his colleagues did an experiment that will probably get another Ig Nobel Prize (laughs) earlier this year. They published it in PLOS One in April. They persuaded a member of their team to get into the MRI scanner. They put a rope around their index finger. And and because they had a microphone in there too, they could see when on the time course the pop occurred and they could tally that with what the MRI scan showed at the time. And in sync with the pop occurring is a bubble appearing in the joint. Not disappearing, appearing. appearing. So it is the existence of that bubble popping into existence, which takes up lots of space in the joint and therefore pushes all of the ligaments and everything else out of the way as well. And that creates this expanding pop that you hear. The bubble then hangs around for a while and takes a while to dissolve naturally into the joints, which is why you can't pop your fingers again. They reckon that the collapsing force of those bubbles is about 7% of the energy that would be required to damage cartilage anyway. So we don't think, even if the bubble did then collapse again, it's likely to do you very much damage. But just enough to kind of freak people out slightly. Oh, I don't like it. Uh, Hugh, we have a great question for you here. We have a question from Heather Henry, who's emailed in. And uh, she says, I'm researching a novel that's in the planning stages. Good luck with that. The novel is set in the near future and involves a dome large enough to cover a city. Could this actually be done in real life? How would this work? Domes made of masonry, the kind of ones that the Romans built, never got much bigger than about 30 metres diameter, if we're lucky. Um, Modern domes, 300 metres diameter. I think the largest in the world is in Singapore, 330 metres diameter. And so to get to covering a city, uh, my guess is that would have to be quite a small city. 300 metres is not very far. But I think the biggest thing you have to remember is that it's not so much the forces required to make a dome that holds up its own weight. It's all the extra forces like weather, wind, snow. You know, even my cat Charlie, if it runs over the top of the dome, if the dome's a really big, lightweight dome, that cat suddenly becomes really heavy. The other thing is that when when the dome is half built, what happens if there's a big storm then? So making yeah, you can't just kind of drop it on on can, top. Yeah. So you've got to you've got to think about how you build something. Where where would the key kind of stresses be? Would it collapse in from the from the top in the middle if if you did manage to get it? Well, built? so that's an interesting question. If you think about um, a rugby scrum, that's a bit like a dome. 
And how does that collapse? <laughs> Dough made of big man. I was going to say, what about chickens <laughs> and eggs? Because they, they have obviously come up with a way of making something which is extraordinarily strong in, in one dimension, admittedly, which is pole to pole. Because you can, I mean, Georgia, our producer, made me stand on a box of eggs as an egg experiment for Easter earlier this year. It did take my weight. There, there must therefore be a strategy that the chickens use to stop their eggs imploding on themselves. Well, could indeed, could we do something similar? Well, chickens a, are a lot smaller than a city, Chris. That's it. That's it. It's quite a small structure. It's made in really very well-controlled circumstances. So when it then has to deal with the main forces of being an egg in the nest, it's pretty perfect. You probably don't want your dome to collapse on your city. So the, 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 it's risky, isn't it? It's, it's a risky, risky strategy. So um, it's not looking like this is a good idea for Heather's novel, I don't think. Well, it's, it's not bad if it's a small city. So it needs to be a small city made of really good engineers. And, and of course, if, if you're trying to make a big dome, a sports stadium, one thing is you're not allowed to have a pillar in the middle. That kind of spoils the game a bit. Now, these big domes for sports stadiums, the criterion is no pillars. Um, but if you were going to do it for a city, maybe you don't mind having pillars, in which case it then becomes a matter of, OK, how big do you want so to? So it's, it's just like a marquee, basically. So there, I think there's your answer, Heather. You can't have a dome, but you could probably have a really big marquee. Thanks for your question, Heather. That's certainly got us thinking. And as well as answering your questions, all of our guests have brought a news story from this week that's caught their eye. So uh, Ginny, let's start with you. What have you seen in the news this week? Well, I've seen a really interesting study that looks at how animals choose their leaders and whether they do it in the same way that humans do. So this was a study published in Trends in Ecology and Evolution, and they used a mixture of mathematical models and experimental studies to examine that question. They got together experts in a huge range of different disciplines from loads of different universities, including Oxford and California, and they examined a range of different animals. So they looked at elephants, dolphins, lions, chimps, meerkats, zebras, hyenas and capuchin monkeys – And they compared them with eight different human societies who live in groups ranging from 10 to 25,000 people. So they were looking at how these different societies chose their leaders because they're all um, societies that live in groups. They have to make decisions about where to move to, where to forage to find food, how to resolve conflicts. So they all need leaders of some kind. But, you know, meerkats don't vote. So how are they choosing their leaders? Well, interestingly, there weren't that many differences, particularly when you looked at how the leaders became leaders. OK, so there isn't a voting system, but in a fight? most of the animal societies and most of the human societies, it's based on the individuals with the best skills. It's based on experience. As those individuals gain experience, gain more skills, they become leaders. There were a couple of interesting exceptions. There was one human society society and then also hyenas where leadership is inherited it's automatically the daughter of the previous hyena leader who becomes the leader and I guess that's a bit more like our royal family for instance but I think what's really interesting is that actually there were more differences within the two groups within the groups of non-human animals and within the groups of humans than there were between the two groups one difference was that actually human leaders surprisingly tend to be less powerful than animal leaders. So the leaders of the animal groups tend to wield more control and more power than our human leaders do. Except for one area, which was in food gathering. This was another area where there was a big difference in that the non-human animals tend to find their own food and keep it. Whereas in the human societies, the food is all shared. So the leaders then have a bit more influence on where that shared food goes. So you can either eat or you can have like a, a skilled leader. 
I, I think that's maybe maybe stretching it a little bit too far. But those were two areas where where there were some differences. There's always a problem with anthropomorphising too much. Um, we have a question on the phones now from Les. Hi, Les. Hello. Hi. What's your question for us? Uh, well, a few years ago, with on a cruise ship, and uh, there was little shuttle boats, and um, 15, 20 minutes later, you could still see the same trail of where a boat went, even after wind had blown across it and things like that. So so what you're saying is basically that the, the trails that the boats had left in the, the sort of the wake of the boat was still hanging around uh, for quite a while. Hugh, have you got an, an answer to this one? Well, the, the, the wake that comes off a boat is, is turbulence. It's swirl that's generated by the, the boat. And the only way you can get rid of swirl is by that swirl meeting another solid object because conservation of angular momentum says that that swirl doesn't disappear. Now, if the water's quite deep and the boat was away from a shore and there weren't other big boats around, then that swirl will last for a long time. It's the same problem you have when a turbulence left from a plane that's just taken off sticks around for quite a long time. One other thing to bear in mind is that when a boat goes across the surface of the water, it disturbs or perturbs the surface of the water, and there's a lot of proteins and surfactants, which are a bit like washing up liquid in their action chemically in seawater. That's because of plants and other microscopic organisms and, and, and sewage. And the effect that that has is to reduce the surface tension of the water, so it makes making bubbles much easier. And so you tend to see little layers of foam or bubbles where boats have gone. And so one of the things that Les may also have been noticing is a little trail of spume or the white material that you see as a raft of little bubbles and, and disturbance on the surface. Now, Kat, here's one for you. Destiny, by email, says, Can dogs really smell cancer? And if they can, how do they do it? This is is one of my favourite things because I've actually been to visit the medical detection dogs. They have a a little centre outside uh, outside Milton Keynes. And yes, there are chemicals, what we call them volatile molecules, that are given off by cancers and dogs can detect them. And there's various anecdotal stories about owners who noticed, you know, their dog kind of pawing at them or worrying at them and then they were diagnosed with cancer. There are also some experiments, uh, lab tests, if you will, that have been done showing that dogs can pick up uh, the smells, some of the smells given off by tumours, various different types of cancers. And they can, if they're highly trained, we're talking about highly trained sniffer dogs here, they can be trained to reliably sniff out cancers. And there's currently a clinical trial going on in the UK looking at, uh, I believe, things like prostate and bladder cancer by getting dogs to sniff people's wee. The thing about the dogs, though, is that It's all very interesting, but you can't imagine, you know, a a dog in every surgery up and down the country because these are very highly trained dogs. They're highly trained to certain types of cancers because different cancers will give off different molecules. So, uh, you know, the uh, the universal lab test, I just like saying that, better than a CAT scan, is is not going to be really practical. But what could be really useful is if we can work out what are the molecules that these dogs are smelling? Because at the moment, it's really hard to tell the difference between aggressive tumours and tumours that aren't growing very fast. If we could work out what are the dogs smelling and then develop an electronic sensor, kind of a, an e-nose, 
that could sniff out those molecules, then that is the basis of a, a much more widely applicable test. So I think the dog stuff is it's really interesting and they're very, very cute and they work really well. But I think certainly if we can find out what they're telling us, that could be extremely useful. This is sort of the field of metabolomics, isn't it? Scientists are now beginning to detect various diseases by not looking for individual genes or individual markers in and of themselves related to a disease. They're saying, let's measure lots of chemicals all at once in lots of people who have a condition. And what we'll see is that in people who have that condition, there may be some of those chemicals that are changed just very subtly and individually very small change, but taken as a population of changes, you've actually got a very sensitive test. And when I was in... um, Geneva, a couple of weeks ago at a conference uh, run by the drug company Merck, where they were bringing research scientists together from across Africa, I met a chap from South Africa who had invented a breath test for TB and a blood test. And the way this works is that uh, when you have TB and you come into the laboratory and uh, you give samples to try and tell if you've got tuberculosis, it can take a month before you get the diagnosis, which if you've already had to trek a long way to from a remote area, a doctor, to get the diagnosis, that's a problem. His technique means you take a blood sample, you look at lots of different markers in the blood, and he can tell with more than 99.9% sensitivity whether or not a person has got tuberculosis just from a blood sample. And he can do it in 15 minutes. Yeah, the idea of, of breath tests and blood tests for cancers are, are certainly very exciting. I think it's, it's definitely one to watch over the next couple of years. This is The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith. Also with us, Kat Arney and a whole group of esteemed scientists answering all your science questions. You can send them in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or look us up on our Facebook page. Now, we've got a question for Max that has been sent in by Gary Hamilton. Hi Naked Scientists, I'd just like to ask you a question. If humans became extinct and all other animals were unaffected, what species of animal would be the next great dominator of the planet and which would be the most likely to show the same level of intelligence that humans show? That's a good one, isn't it? Who's who's going to be the next king of Earth? That's a great question. Um, Mostly, in fact, it's almost impossible to come up with an accurate answer for it's very difficult to say. What about cockroaches? Everyone's like, cockroaches, when it when the nuclear apocalypse comes, it's going to be the cockroaches. Yes, in that cockroaches can survive radiation quite well, but that doesn't mean they're going to become super intelligent. I mean, the whole thing about radiation altering your anatomy or giving you superpowers is obviously a complete myth. In terms uh, of thinking about what might take over that, I mean, you need something, you think you need something that's smart, so but the primates, primates aren't very widespread, individual it's species. It's impossible to view it from a non-human standpoint, like the way you ask the question, it's what would take our place, which isn't necessarily what would happen at all. That's not how evolution works. There might not be a next most dominant species. Well, it might so be cats, speak. you know. I, I think they can probably use a kettle, so... It could... Really? Well, <laughs> they, I think they could learn. It depends on the kettle, but you'd have to have people designing a kettle that could be used by cats. Oh. And so this is one interesting question about... All of the way we interact with the world is mitigated by tools and by our technology, which is all very much geared towards our manual dexterity. That's what sets us apart. And so to replace us, kind of to have a, a dominant animal, so to speak, in the, in the way that we fit in the world, you'd need an animal that could develop technology to then devote a lot of time to things other than hunting and reproducing, and which is what all animals spend most of their time doing, either struggling to survive or struggling to reproduce. Um, Whereas humans don't do that. We've developed the uh, means of surviving largely by spending 
an hour a week going to the supermarket and then that's about it and then we're all all right and can spend the rest of our time doing whatever else we like and that's where technological advancement and you know literature and the arts and everything that's why we have that i mean there's a, there's a slightly philosophical thing about are we the dominator of the planet because i mean, something like bacteria arguably probably more successful than than we are in terms which of is, where they've got to and what they're up to it, apart from the lack of, of literature and all that kind of stuff yeah but again, is that dominance? I mean, also bacteria are... They never made Breaking it's Bad. It's such a huge... Uh, you're saying bacteria as if that's an animal in its yeah. own right. I mean, bacteria is an entire like, World of kingdom species. of, of yeah. species of which are innumerably more populous than the animal kingdom. Um, I don't know if there's one bacterium that you could say that about so uh, i think we can't really answer your question gary but uh nice and speculative yes the short answer is i have no idea no one has a clue um chris let's ask you a question now from declan groves in ireland and he asked quite a good one he says has there been new water created since the world began i think this is quite an interesting question new water being made all the time First of all, where did all the water on Earth come from in the first place? Because the Earth's about four and a half billion years old. The stuff that it was made from, which was a ring of dust and gas which was forming around the early sun, we've got models of that environment and there's probably not very much water in that. So all the water on Earth at the moment must have come here from somewhere. The most likely source is comets, which are dirty ice balls, and also asteroids. Now, people have measured the biochemical and chemical makeup of the water on Earth and compared it to the water measurements from comets. The comets they've studied don't seem to have the same chemical makeup. So we think asteroids which do appear to have a much closer makeup in terms of the isotope ratio, as it's known, um, between the, the asteroid and the Earth, does appear to match much better. So we think that probably the water we've got, most of it, came to the Earth from things hitting the Earth in the first billion years or so after the planet formed. But at the same time, there's a lot of hydrogen here, there's a lot of oxygen on the Earth. The two can react together to produce water, which they do all the time. In your body, for example, and in anything that's alive and respiring, we can take an example. If, if you burn a molecule of sugar glucose, C6H12O6, and you burn it with six molecules of oxygen, 6O2, the product is some energy, that's what keeps you going, plus six molecules of CO2, carbon dioxide, that you breathe out, plus six molecules of water. And you pee those out and you also breathe them out because you breathe out maybe half a litre or so of water every day. So everything that's alive is doing that process. So there's lots of water being made every day. So the water molecules that are here are not the same water molecules, but the chemicals that they're made from, the Earth is pretty much a closed system. We're losing a bit of hydrogen off into space. We're just rearranging molecules to make new ones all the time. Thank you, Chris. Uh, we've got a question for you, Ginny, here. This is uh, from Paul by email. And he said, I've just read Dr. Claire Asher's article about parasites controlling the mind. He basically wants to know, could there be, if you took swabs from criminals, would you find a pattern of types of bacteria or parasites which might be influencing criminal behaviour? So could people say, oh, it wasn't me, it was my bugs? That's a really interesting question. So I think the parasite that he's referring to is toxoplasmosis, which is a parasite that it's very, very common and it lives out its life cycle in rats, but then it has to be passed into a cat to complete its life cycle. So what it does is it controls that rat's mind and it makes the rat less scared of cats. In fact, it's even attracted to the smell of cat feces. So it goes out into the open, it's more likely to be eaten by a cat and that helps the parasite complete its life cycle. Interestingly, lots of humans are carrying this parasite. Most of us, we don't think it causes any harm. Most people don't have symptoms. 
but it does stick around in our bodies for a long time after we've had it. And they found that people who have toxoplasmosis latent inside them are two and a half times as likely to get into car accidents. So it seems like it might be having some kind of effect similar to the effect it has on rats on us as well. So could bacteria have the same sort of effect? Well, we're learning more and more about our microbiome, the microbes that live inside us and how much of an effect that can have on all sorts of things. It can affect sleep, mood, memory, it can cause illnesses, it can cause depression, all sorts of things. So there's a chance that your microbiome could be having an influence on perhaps your risk-taking behaviour, perhaps your mood, perhaps making you more aggressive. I haven't found any studies that have been directly looking at that yet, but I did find an interesting one that looked at antisocial behaviour in prisons, including violence, and found that by supplementing the diet with vitamins, minerals and fatty acids, it improved that kind of behaviour. And they didn't really mention how that improvement might have been coming about. But we know that your diet has a huge effect on the bugs that live inside you, on your microbiome. So it's not too big a jump to say that it could have been the microbiome that mediated that effect. But we just don't know yet. Ginny, you beautifully answered Bavish's question on Twitter because he said, at Naked Scientist, how does the food we consume affect our genes but also our gut brain, in other words, meaning the microbiome? So you've addressed that one. Uh, One point about the toxoplasmosis, everything that, that does carry it carries it for life and the French have some of the highest rates of toxoplasmosis <laughs> carriage in the world, in fact, uh, up to 80%. And uh, that's probably because they subscribe to cooking things at room temperature a lot of the time. But they also have a very poor driving record. And so some scientists have speculated that the poor driving record and therefore higher insurance premiums in France <laughs> may be directly correlated with toxoplasmosis. The really interesting point from that is what Kat said. Can we say if your microbiome is having that effect, is it really you that did the crime? But actually, another really interesting study is looking at the opposite way around, because, of course, our microbiomes are signatures. They're as unique to us as our fingerprints. And they've recently found that you actually leave that signature behind you. So they're starting to look at whether you could use microbiomes to solve a crime by looking at who'd been in the area. And and the whole question of, you know, if you have a transpusion, are you potentially at risk of uh, acquiring someone's dodgy Mm. behaviour? Because, you know, there was an editorial in the British Medical Journal a couple of weeks ago asking that very question. Yeah, no, I I interviewed Tim Spector about that. It it was really interesting because I think they gave someone who was thin, she had a a transfusion, a poo transplant from someone who was larger and put on weight. But it's all a bit, it's a bit difficult to say if if that's really the case. But we, we won't go down that road. I think we've talked about poo enough on this show. And now I want to hear some news and I want to hear some news this week from Max. What's caught your eye? Well, the biggest news story in the zoology and conservation world at the moment is the fact that vast amounts of Indonesia are on fire. Um, if you've come across this news story, it's that there's there's huge numbers of forest fires in Indonesia, partly because it's an El Nino year, so the weather's been drier, the monsoons haven't kicked in very early, and small holdings where they burn parts of forest to clear the land for, for farming, which is often for oil palm plantations, have spread to, to huge, phenomenally large areas of, of rainforest. I mean, how big are we talking here? It's, like, it's a chain of islands, isn't that, it? Yeah. It is, and so there's fires everywhere, essentially. They're visible from space, so there's huge amounts of space. This sounds horrific. What's it doing to the ecosystem Um, there? Well, it's destroying a huge amount of habitat, uh, which is always a problem. Um, Unfortunately, this isn't necessarily news in itself because rainforest destruction in that part of the world is always an issue. 
Fortunately, this week it seems to be coming to a close, mostly because the rains have started kicking in rather than because of any effective human action. But it has had all sorts of horrible effects on, on human health because of just the sheer amount of smoke and haze in the atmosphere. It's even caused a huge amount of carbon emissions as a result, unfortunately. This and other forest fires over the course of this year in Indonesia have released 1.6 billion tonnes of CO2, Whoa. which is, to put that into perspective, that's about twice the annual carbon emissions of Germany. Uh, this is a horrible, horrible uh, thing going on, unfortunately. Hugh? Is it just the forest that's on fire? Isn't it? There's also the, the peat in the ground, which is exactly That's exactly true as well. So most There's of loads these of carbon in that, are, isn't there? But... Yeah, so the, these peat forests are some of the most diverse habitats on the face of the planet. And because the peat is very, very dense, there's a huge amount of carbon stored there, it burns very readily, as you know, it used to be very common. There's a lot of peat swamps up in Scotland, and that has historically in the UK been used as fuel for fires when people couldn't get access to coal in the 19th century. Is this kind of fire situation, is that part of a natural cycle? Because I know in places like California, you know, they have fires and then it's kind of okay no. and everything's kind of cool and that's part of the, the, the circle of life. No, unfortunately not. This is really a direct consequence of human action where people have set these fires to clear land so that they can then be planted and that has gone out of hand. So a lot of the, the products that we consume on a day-to-day basis contain palm oil, a huge quantity of which is grown in this part of the world. And there is a divide in oil palm between what we refer to as sustainable palm oil and the other kind of palm oil, which nobody ever refers to as unsustainable palm oil. But it's <laughs> Naughty it. palm yeah, oil. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And the sustainable palm oil does have a condition of not using this burning technique. And so although it's it, it's a slowly growing movement, the, essentially by seeking out sustainable palm oil, even people on this side of the planet can potentially make uh, a, a difference, albeit somewhat small, to to stopping this from happening in the future. Hugh, getting back to the peat, though, I mean, we, we could, in theory, uh, stop um, pulling down these forests and maybe grow more trees, but we can never replace that peat. I mean, that peat's been there no. for, for, for millions of years. So people, people have done calculations about this and... Have, Theorise that once it's gone, it, it, it could come back, but it might take on the order of four to seven hundred years. Quite a legacy, isn't it? Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with the programme, uh, perhaps in reaction to that or with a question for us, tweet at Naked Scientist or you can send us an email. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. Hugh, here's a question for you. Uh, it's from Frank by email, who says, What would happen if you tried to get rid of spent nuclear fuel rods by just chucking them into an active volcano? Would this work? Is this even a good idea? <laughs> Gosh. Seems a good idea to me, but I don't know. Well, it's, it's an interesting idea. I mean, I think we do need to find a safe place to keep nuclear waste for thousands of years, really. Some of the materials in nuclear waste are man-made. They just don't exist in nature. So one of the things we've got to be very careful about is not putting really nasty materials in places which where they might end up uh, affecting the biodiversity well, and also where they're not going to come back out well, they're not going again. To come back. And that seems so, to be the trouble with volcanoes. It is a bit of a trouble with volcanoes, but that's not entirely the case. If it's a volcano that's not going to erupt, then maybe what you're doing is because of the natural circulation of the magma that can go in and out, up and down, into the deep into the earth, maybe it is a good place. But you have to have a certainty in this. And certainly one of the issues we would face is how would you transport these very dangerous materials, from where they are in these safe stores 
up the side of a mountain. And this sounds like kind of a James Bond thing, oh, yeah, doesn't it? It's going to fly James a helicopter directly but full of nuclear fuel there into is a, a volcano. There is, a, there is a serious side to this that it has been suggested that a really good place to put nuclear waste would be at the uh, at the subduction zones of geological strata. So that, oh, so like down and by the oceans or, yeah, you know, so the that, sort of trenches and stuff like that. So that it means that actually gradually over time these nasty materials do get taken down into the earth. But a lot of this is very politically charged. Could you ever get permission, whatever that means on a global scale, to do anything safe with uh, nuclear fuels? And I think that's one of the biggest challenges facing the nuclear industry. Can I just pick up on a, a quick tweet here from Joe Harris, Hugh, since you are our engineering guru? Um, and the, the question from Joe is, are roads made of the safest materials? As an engineer, how would you approach that question and, and, and can you answer it? Are roads made of the safest materials? Well, they're made of a very convenient material because when you're uh, extracting billions of tonnes of of fossil fuels out of the ground, some of the stuff that you extract is this thick, sticky liquid, tar, which it's quite expensive to turn into anything useful. And to be able to use your sticky, gungy waste to make roads is, is very convenient. People were using telephone directories as well, weren't they? They found that if they chewed them up and laid them down underneath the road, then you had a very good way of attenuating vibration, so it soaked up some of the shocks and sounds and noise pollution. Well, there's a, a huge uh, array of wonderful things you might do to make roads better, cleverer. You know, For instance, you could embed solar panels in roads that would run the streetlights, and we've seen those sorts of things. But ultimately what happens is that the yearly cycle of freezing and thawing and frost heave and the heavy loads from trucks, roads crack up. And the biggest challenge is making roads that don't crack up. And we've come to the conclusion, really, that flexible bitumen works and inflexible materials are not so good. And Um, maybe, ultimately, that's where we're stuck with bitumen. I was interviewing someone last week who's looking at putting little pieces of graphene, graphite graphene so somewhere between the two not the kind of really expensive single layer graphene slightly chunkier stuff like smashed up pencil leads into road surfaces and it makes them tougher and less likely to crack and less likely to end up with pothole problems and extends the life of the roads. Those kinds of ideas are are absolutely fantastic but what's interesting is that over the, the last however many decades engineers have been trying to figure out actually what does cause roads to break up? And it's a very difficult problem. There is this thing called the fourth power law, which says that the rate at which roads break up is proportional to the fourth power of the load. But this is terribly approximate because it depends so much on weather and frost heave and there are so many factors. So there is not a simple answer. Well, there you go, Joe. There's not a simple answer, and you can tweet at Naked Scientists if you have a related question. We've heard from Patrick Cat by email, chris at nakedscientist.com. Patrick says, and I'm going to change the question very slightly by adding a little questionette of my own. Do, do you eat sausages and bacon? Because his question says, does drinking milk increase the chance of cancer? But there's been all this furore. Oh, tell, yeah. me, tell me, give me your, your cancer sort of insight. Should I be eschewing bacon and sausages or... 
should I just take a reality check? And probably the risk is relatively low. OK, so I'm going to put my work hat on here because I, for my day job, I work for Cancer Research UK. And we do have a lot to say about diet and cancer risk. And there have been a lot of studies done. So there was all this stuff in the news recently about, you know, red meat is as bad as smoking and it's all really terrible. When you look closely at it, there's a, a really important difference when you're looking at components of the diet and cancer risk about the strength of the evidence versus the size of the risk. Now, all the red meat stories came about because IARC, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization, they basically said that there is strong enough evidence on red and processed meat to put it in the same category as smoking in terms of it causing cancer or increasing the risk of cancer in humans. Now, this doesn't mean that a sausage is as bad as smoking a fag. This isn't the same thing at all. So what about if you smoke the sausage? Yeah, well, smoked sausages are possibly worse than normal sausages. Uh, but basically, we know, for example, that certain amounts that you smoke increase your risk by certain amounts, uh, which is much bigger than the increase in risk in eating certain amounts of red and processed meat. So uh, basically, it's about the, the strength of the evidence is very strong. We definitely know that if you eat certain amounts of red and processed meat, you will increase your cancer risk by a certain amount. You know, the more you eat, the bigger your risk. The less red and processed meat you eat, the lower your risk. Um, I mean, the fact is there are billions of cigarettes being smoked all around the world every day, Exactly. Aren't there? I mean, certainly your risk from being a regular smoker is going to be a bigger cancer risk than being a regular meat eater, but there will be a risk associated with eating red and processed meat. And um, does milk come under red yeah, and processed? Is it the same sort no. of envelope? So basically the evidence on milk and dairy increasing cancer risk is very, very mixed. It's kind of a bit of a internet folklore thing that, that dairy, you know, dairy is bad for you and it will increase your risk of cancer, particularly breast cancer. The studies have been very mixed on it. So some have shown that eating lots of milk and dairy increases your cancer risk. Others have shown that it decreases your cancer risk. So there's certainly the, the weight of evidence there is all over the place. But more broadly, when you're talking about diet and cancer, we don't just eat one thing. You know, you don't just live on steak or on cabbage. You need to have a balanced diet that's kind of rich in fruit and vegetables, less red and processed meat. You know, if you're if you're a meat eater, more chicken and fish. It's it's risk. It's not a yes, no, black, white. The more of one thing you do, the more it'll increase your risk. The more of something else you do, the more it'll decrease your risk. It's the same with alcohol. The only thing that's really kind of really, really bad for you is basically smoking. So don't do that. Um, we've got a question now for Max. So here's a, here's a lovely one. We have a question in from Vinny, who says, do squirrels ever forget where they put their nuts? Yes, is the short answer. <laughs> um, but not as much as people seem to think they do. It's quite a common mistruth that um, squirrels forget about 50% of their nuts, which is not quite how it works. Squirrels are actually very good at remembering where they've left their nuts. They can how also... do they remember? Where do they? Because they don't. Do they mark it out, or are they just like they, it's they all up in remember? The head? I, exactly, the mechanisms aren't involved. This has been studied in a lot more detail in birds in a bird called the Florida scrub jay by somebody called Nikki Clayton here in Cambridge, actually, and they use a combination of both relative and non-relative directions and cues and landmarks and, and that kind of thing. But we also believe that for squirrels use the sense of smell to assist them. They may be able to smell, because they don't bury the nuts very deep, as so they may still be able to smell the acorns. But they inevitably don't retrieve some of them. But the important point is that 
if they don't retrieve them, that, that's not necessarily because they've forgotten where it is. They're so, saving it for later. Well, or you would imagine a squirrel going about preparing for winter is frantically running around in an oak forest, stealing all the acorns and, and burying them all over the place. But you're going to prepare in you know, as a squirrel. You're going to want to prepare for an unusually long winter or a winter that starts earlier or in case some of your acorns get dug up by other squirrels. Oh, they get happens. nicked. Do they, they, do, do they, yeah. nick, they nick each other's acorns? Yeah, and actually there's some evidence that the squirrels will fake hide their acorns. They'll, they'll kind of scurry about in the, in the earth and not put an acorn <laughs> there buggers. if there's other squirrels watching them. <laughs> they're like, ooh. Yeah, it's called tactical deception, which is they're, quite a fun term. They're much cleverer than I thought. Ginny, we've got a question for you here, which I believe is from Steve Rampley. Hello. I was wondering whether science can tell us anything about whether or not we have free will. Giving me the easy questions tonight. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, free will. The first thing to say is what exactly is free will? We all have this feeling that we are agents, that we make our own decisions. But what do we really mean by that? I mean, what do we even mean when we say we? I guess we mean our brains, because that's kind of where us comes from, but it all starts getting quite philosophical. To take you back to the sort of neuroscience side of things, there's a very famous experiment by a guy called Libet, who asked people when they were in an EEG machine to move their finger whenever they felt like it. And remember what time it was, they were looking at a clock when they decided they were going to make that movement. But he was also looking at what was going on inside their brain. And he found that there was a 200 millisecond delay between the urge to move and when they actually made the movement. But 550 milliseconds before the urge, before they'd even decided, he could see a specific pattern of brainwaves that predicted they were going to make a decision. So that suggests that actually our deciding to move comes after our brains have already done something that's going to make us move. So he was saying that this suggests that free will is actually a complete illusion and we don't actually have it. So what, I mean, what is controlling us? Yeah, so we're not 100% sure. What we think is, is that... Is it the parasites in... <laughs> <laughs> it could be the parasites. But basically, our neurons start to fire when enough input has built up. So, for example, if you went outside and it's a sunny day, you're getting input from the sun that's going through your eyes to your brain. And it may be that you decide to put your sunglasses on when that input has built up enough to make your neurons fire then your free will kind of comes after the effect and creates this idea that you thought you're going to put your sunglasses on. We know that our neurons aren't quiet. All the time, stuff is going on in our brain. Even when we're relaxing, we've got this default mode network where things are firing, stuff's going on. And it could just be that our decisions are when that kind of random firing has built up enough and free will is an illusion. As well as answering your questions, it's time to find out what's been going on in the science news this week. Hugh, what have you got for us? Well, uh, it's, uh, last week was uh, Tomorrow's Engineers Week. And I think it's really important to recognise that um, if you're doing maths or physics or science at uh, GCSE at school, um, you could carry on with your maths and physics and maybe go on to study engineering and become an engineer. Because I don't think there is a very strong link at school with the idea that engineering needs maths. So last week there were lots, there was lots and lots going on uh, in schools and outside of schools to try and show how engineers out there in the real world use what they learned at school. And it was just fabulous to see 
just how much excitement and interest there is in engineering. I mean, when you think about maths, there is this kind of almost this, this joke that you learn about this stuff at school and then you never use it in the rest of your life. I mean, what kind of jobs come under the banner of engineering? Because I think people think maybe, oh, it's just someone building a bridge or digging a tunnel. I think it's a very interesting thing to think about. The uh, Philae lander that um, landed on a comet recently and that those remarkable photos that came back from Pluto... I think it's estimated that 90% of the people that worked on those projects were engineers. And a lot of that engineering isn't the engineering of the lander itself or of the, of, of the devices that go into space, but all of the ground engineering. How do you receive the signals? How do you analyze them? How do you process them? And I think every, every object that you see in, in your room, if you look around, there's a chair, there's a light bulb, there's, a, there's paint on the wall, there's carpet... It's an engineering marvel that all of these things are there. And, uh, and I know certainly from the Campaign for Women in Science Engineering, trying to get more girls to go into engineering as well. It's, and it's interesting that in some countries uh, like France, engineering is uh, perhaps about 50-50 men and women. There's absolutely nothing at all that says that engineering should be a, a male domain. This is The Naked Scientist. I'm Kat Arney, and we're joined by Chris Smith, Hugh Hunt, Max Gray and Ginny Smith and we're answering all your science questions. So Chris, there's a question that's coming from you from Rennie. Hi Chris, it's Rennie from Cary Fergus in Northern Ireland. I have a question about sleep. My alarm is set for 8am but I wake up naturally around 6am. During those two hours I lie in bed trying to get back to sleep but it isn't until at least 7.45 that I feel myself begin to drift into a deep sleep. I even have a similar experience at the weekend, when I don't need to get out of bed before 11. Is there a biological reason for this phenomenon? Well, in my case, Rennie, it's called two kids, uh, and if I haven't woken up naturally, then they make sure I wake up. The reason this happens is that we're actually extremely good at keeping time, in common with pretty much every living process on Earth, and I'm including in that bacteria even. We have body clocks. Bacteria have a body clock. They know what time of day it is, chemically speaking. In us, the seat of that body clock is a small cluster of maybe something like 20,000 nerve cells, which is in a part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's in the bottom, in the centre of your brain. And these nerve cells are running a, a genetic programme where gene 1 turns on, and that turns on gene 2, which in turn turns on gene 3 and feeds back and switches off gene 1. And this genetic clock ticks round, taking about 24 and a half hours to complete its cycle. As it does so, it changes the activity of the nerve cells in the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and because they are connected to lots of other bodily systems, they can influence how different parts of your brain function, and, critically, they influence other parts of your so-called hypothalamus, including the part of your hypothalamus that produces the hormone cortisol, which comes out of your pituitary, goes around your bloodstream and visits every cell in your body. And this is how your brain's body clock then sets slave clocks, which are running in every single cell, pretty much, in your body. So every cell in your body knows what time it is. And when you get into a rhythm of always waking up at a certain time, your body has to anticipate that it's going to need a big surge of energy at a certain time of day, because that means that when you leap out of bed in the morning, you're ready to go. Your metabolism's fired up, you have energy on tap, you're enthusiastic, raring to go because you want to get to work because it's Monday morning. And the way it does that is by learning that process and cortisol setting all those clocks. Now, what that does mean is that when you change time zones, 
it's all off whack and out of kilter because that learning needs to be relearned and readjusted. It also means that because your body clock hasn't catered for weekends, it still thinks it's going to be Monday to Friday. And so your body clock gets you out of bed even on the weekend and at least alerts you and wakes you up and prepares you for the day ahead before you actually need to. And it takes a little while to overcome that effect and try and drop off again. And by then, of course, you should be raring to go again. So unfortunately, there's no simple answer apart from learning to get up later during the week, which is not always possible. I, I have seen some quite interesting stuff about, you know, schools and workplaces should be more catered towards people who have different sleep-wake cycles. Because I'm a real night owl. I struggle to fall asleep before about one o'clock in the morning. And luckily, I've got a bit of flexibility. I don't normally have to get to work until about 10. But I don't even wake up till at least lunchtime in my brain. Yeah, the thing that's really making a difference now, though, is screens. Um, the change and the revolution in technology means that many, many people are sitting in front of computer screens and flat screens, which are LCD, until well into the night. And social media have got very good data on who's using it, what they're logged into and, <laughs> and what their exposure is. It's basically all me, is. I think. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason these screens are important is that they are using blue LEDs to produce the white light that you see from the screen. And the blue is critical because it goes out of the screen into your eye and at the back of your eye is a population of retinal ganglion cells and they're called intrinsically photosensitive sensitive retinal ganglion cells, they're important because although you don't see with those cells, they contain a pigment that's very sensitive to blue light and they're connected to your body clock and they're used to reset your body clock and tell it when it's bright light coming in early in the morning must be wake-up time. So by basting yourself in rays from your screens at night, you're actually sending a really strong wake-up signal to your brain which is what you shouldn't be doing last thing at night. And as a result, you're actually waking yourself up and making it harder to fall asleep. And people are robbing themselves of sleep chronically this way. Well, not unless I stay in bed till lunchtime. We've got a question here for you, Max. And this is from Stacey Rollings, who's emailed in and said, how is it determined that a particular organism is a new species? Uh, she's heard that the inability to interbreed is one factor. But for example, wolves and dogs can interbreed and horses and donkeys. So what's going on? What defines a species and, and how do you know when you've got a new one? Broadly speaking, it's it's close to the inability to interbreed, but it's it's actually defined as something called reproductive isolation which is not necessarily an inability to interbreed. It can also happen just through geographical isolation. So they can't if kind of get they together happen to, in different places. to do it. Yeah. And so there are species that are regarded as separate species that in theory could interbreed. Um, and the important point is to interbreed and produce fertile offspring. So in the cases of horses and donkeys, the mule that's produced can't then breed itself. So that is functionally not interbreeding, even though an animal is produced at the end of it. So is this how you define what a separate species is? Are there particular kind of criteria? Again, not quite. So we're getting to the point where there are beginning to be criteria. So throughout the history of zoology, uh, identifying new species has always been quite an exciting thing that people do. You um, get to name it and all yeah, that kind exactly. of stuff. Um, yeah. Although naming it after yourself isn't really the done thing anymore. <laughs> um, although I think Attenborough has quite a lot of things named I think there's stuff now, named after Beyonce and yeah. all kinds oh, of things. Oh, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... Um, the naming of a new species is, is governed. There, there are bodies that govern that kind of thing. So when something is discovered, it's new. But there's things called cryptic species, which essentially look and are both visually, anatomically, morphologically nearly identical and very, very difficult to tell apart. But at a genetic level, they're very distinct. And so it's starting to get to the point where, tr where we're trying to figure out a threshold, sort of a quantifiable amount of genetic difference now that we can do the genetic and genomic testings for, for species and, and figure out a definition that way, um, That's which gonna is be... really the only hard 
target and there's something that can be done very specifically. Otherwise, there's a lot of, of leeway in it. And that's going to be pretty difficult because even as humans, say you and I, we've got about four million genetic differences between us. Uh, chimps and humans are about kind of 99% identical genetically. So there's going to be some pretty tough cutoffs to be made. Fascinating. Thanks very much, Max. Kat, uh, one for you. Bruce Rogers has got in touch by email to chris at nakedscientist.com and he says, how do creatures in sub-zero environments keep their metabolisms working? Oh, this is a great question, basically, because I like polar bears. Um, now, there's there's kind of a difference between hot-blooded and cold-blooded animals. Now, the hot-blooded animals, they need to keep a constant body temperature. And you tend to get more hot-blooded animals in colder places. Uh, so, for example, they will keep their body size. They'll have big body size because that means they lose less heat. They'll have things like fur, lots of blubber. They'll try and eat as much as they can. And this helps to keep them at this temperature where their metabolism will work. I mean, cold-blooded animals, things like snakes, salamanders, all this kind of thing, they will just be the temperature of their environment. So as the temperature gets colder and colder and colder, they're basically just going to kind of shut down. So, you know, turtles and things like that will effectively just, if it gets really cold, they'll just stop working. Um, Bigger animals and and mammals, they can hibernate and their body temperature does drop and that kind of gets them through the worst of the winter. And scientists are really trying to study this phenomenon to find out, you know, can we maybe put people into a kind of suspended animation if they've had an accident or potentially, as we've talked about, going to Mars, you know, could that work? Uh, And another thing is that the genetics of individual organisms affect their metabolism. So, for example, you know, you might make slightly different enzymes that work better at different temperatures. And also there's different molecules in your cells that can act as antifreeze and try and keep all your cells and everything going at lower temperatures. So there's lots of different ways that animals do it. Obviously, evolution is a wonderful thing and will adapt each organism to the niche that it lives in. But uh, yeah, lots of ways that uh, different animals do that. Polar bears, mostly by being cute and furry. So uh, that's, I'm afraid, all we've had time for. A huge thank you to our wonderful panel this week. That's Chris Smith, Hugh Hunt, Max Gray and Ginny Smith. And thank you to Georgia Mills for production. I'm Kat Arney. Do join us next week when we're getting caught up in the world of big data. What can it do for you? And is your data safe? Find out next week. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Thank you for listening. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Today in Focus is the daily news podcast from The Guardian. Join me, Anushka Astana, every weekday as I bring you stories from across the UK and around the world. We'll take you to the front line of the climate emergency. The smoke smells like everything is on fire. Behind the scenes in Westminster. We're in the sort of political Wild West. And we'll cover the latest trends in technology and popular culture. TikTok, TikTok, buzz, buzz, buzz. ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the US and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.